0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Surface. My name is Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I'm very interested in talking to interesting people who are performers. They're everything from CEOs to coaches to athletes to musicians to actors. Anyone who considers himself to be a performer and is an expert at their craft. So what we will do is ask questions to dive deep and dig deep into their mindset, into their journey, into their story, what makes them unique, what makes them special, so that hopefully it can help you as you continue on your journey for development and as you go beyond the surface with yourself as well. I'm excited to bring part two of my conversation with David Falk to all of you. Uh, In this part, David really gets into his journey as an entrepreneur or as the head of his company uh, when he had broken off from Donald Dell's company. And We will talk about that journey and that process and what that looked like and lessons learned along the way. We will also get more in-depth into David's mindset and how he looks at the world. Uh, We'll talk about his preferences and, and things that he prefers over others, He'll also get more into detail about some of his clients and the decisions that they had to make and how he guided them in those decisions. Lastly, I think one of the big things that was a takeaway for me was that David really became a coach and a mentor to a lot of his clients. And I think today, really, David values himself as somebody who can give advice and give sound advice based on his experience and his uh, breadth of knowledge. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Falk on Beyond the Surface.
1: I left the one of my own and the next- Did
0: you, did you, because I know for me, growing up in my house, my dad always worked for himself. Not always, but for most of his life worked for himself. So there was always a appreciation for entrepreneurship or the ability to not have to work specifically for one boss. Uh, Did you ever have a dream for yourself to work for yourself or did that not matter to you? It really
1: didn't matter because I was doing the one thing I always wanted to do and I loved. And when I left on my own in 1992, I was working for Michael Jordan, Patrick Ewing, James Lofton, Boomer and John Thompson. You know, I mean, I was living my dream. You're good. And the fact that I wasn't working for myself really didn't matter that much. Even the fact I wasn't making a lot of money didn't matter, I I loved what I did, I was very happy. Um, But what happened was in the fall of 1991, I went to Chicago to see Michael and I ended up the next morning working out with him and I overdid a little bit and I got a blood clot and I sat in the hospital in intensive care, I had surgery Um, and I thought to myself, wow, you've been really selfish to your family. You know, you're doing something that you love without worrying about money or security. What if you had died? Like, Could your wife go to the bank to pay your mortgage with an article about you in Sports Illustrated? You know I mean? You haven't remotely done what you need to do to provide security for your family. So I knew how to leave. It wasn't because I wanted to be on my own. I wasn't selfish. I thought I was selfish in not you know providing for my family and so I had a non-compete I really didn't know what was going to happen I didn't talk to one player you know I, I consulted some attorneys and they told me if you want to go on your own you have to go clean you cannot in any way shape or form like premeditate this because if if it ever comes up in a case and you said I've talked to Michael and say hey, I'm going on my own will you come with me you, you're gonna lose and so I was I was scared to death I, I thought that a number of players would be loyal to me, but I expected there'd be fallout. But So it wasn't
0: end, a Jerry Maguire who's coming with me moment at that point. No. And, and I didn't want to leave. Like, I was very content to be
1: the number, I was the vice chairman of a big company, the second biggest company in the world in sports management. You know, it wasn't an ego thing where I was competing with Donald. Um I was really in my own area. I was running my own division of the company, the only division of the company that was making money. The rest of it was losing money. And I was very happy. And did I wanna make more money? Sure, Do I, could I have made more money? By snapping my fingers. I could have made it any day of the week.
0: So we go back a little bit. So you're working for him, he's got the tennis thing going. You really build a basketball program within his company and just so happened along the way, even before, this is where me knowing about your story a little bit, but guys like James Worthy, um, even before that, Adrian Dantley, um, but those guys are, are, you know, big time basketball. Players. But I, I say, I mean, all those early guys
1: came to the company because of Donald's reputation. He had relationships with Dean Smith at Carolina and, um, Morgan Wooten at Damatha And I'd say until about, until 85, the vast majority of guys in my first 10 years of 75 to 85, vast majority came because of Donald's stature, his reputation, he was the chairman of the company, he was the name partner in the firm. But what happened is, once they got there, his passion was tennis, my passion was basketball. I knew early on, as I surveyed the landscape, that tennis was not my strength. I didn't have a feel for it. I loved basketball and football. I thought I knew that better than anyone. Um, And that's where I gravitated towards. I didn't grow up in a country club environment basketball and football were much more Levittown than Potomac, Maryland. Uh, and that's what I felt comfortable in. And so while Donald's responsible for attracting the players, once they came to the firm, I managed them. And I did the most mundane things from the time I was 24 years old on. And in the second time around with all these players, I did all the second contracts. And so the, the drill, if you will, Let's say at a place like North Carolina, the players would you come down, and they knew more about us than we probably knew about them. And they would say, "You're going to meet this gentleman Donald Dell. He's the senior guy. He's going to do your first deal." They called him the Ghost. You'll never see him after the mm-hmm. first deal. And you're going to meet this young guy David Falk, who's like a nothing, but he's going to day to day. He's going to be your nuts and bolts guy and take over. And in '85. I signed my first really big con- player of my own, which is Patrick Ewing. And that, he got the highest contract in NBA history, veteran or rookie, and it just changed my career. And John Thompson made that happen. John Thompson was sort of the anti-person. He, he bet on the underdog. I wasn't the top dog, I wasn't the name guy. And because of his background and what he had overcome to be successful in his environment, I think he gravitated to the other. Did
0: you consider yourself to be an underdog? No,
1: I, I knew I wasn't the top dog. I wouldn't say I was an underdog, but I knew I didn't have the stature at that point, you know, to attract to attract those players. But I thought I had the talent.
0: The reason I asked that question is because a lot of pro athletes have underdog stories. Um, Stephen Curry, Damian Lillard. Draymond um, Green. I, Michael think, Jordan. Michael Jordan got cut
1: from his varsity team as a sophomore.
0: But did Michael think of himself as an underdog?
1: Maybe early on. I mean, but I never really looked at myself as either... An, I was realistic. I understood I wasn't the name person. I always looked at myself as like an acquired taste. I didn't want to come in and blow somebody out of the world of my personality because my economic background said, don't pick me because I'm a great person. Pick me because I'm really good at what I do. Pick, me in, pick Almost pick me in spite of my personality. I didn't want to try to charm somebody. I didn't like people that charm me. It, it st- and so the people I, over my lifetime, that I became really close with, if you think about it, someone like John Thompson, um, Michael Jordan, you know, those kinds of people, very hard to break through. You know, they were tough they, they wanted you to prove themselves. But once you broke through, they became like lifelong friends. And
0: there's your loyalty component that, that you, you resonate with.
1: Absolutely. And, and, um, and, so, and so I wasn't insecure that I wasn't the top dog. I was very happy doing what I was doing. I felt I was developing a niche for myself, that I was really an expert in the collective bargaining agreement and salaries. I think that long before the term analytics was invented... I learned, when I was 24 years old, that if I walked into Red Auerbach's office, who was the, probably the greatest GM in history, Jerry West's office, uh, who was probably the greatest talent evaluator in history, my idol in basketball, and a person i consider a dear friend, I'm not gonna give them my theories on basketball or my analysis of a player. They're gonna laugh me out of the office. They've forgotten more about that stuff than I knew. So in order for me to develop uh, a position of respect and credibility, I had to come to the table with something that they didn't have. And so I developed a view of players, not how good they were, but what was their economic impact on the team?
0: So, so uh, one, one of the things I, I heard as you were talking was, pick me in spite of my personality, in the sense that I want you to pick me because you know that I'm best for the job. Where does that belief come from in yourself? Confidence. I would I would use the word confidence.
1: You know, I, I as I look back, I didn't do this intentionally, but I would say my first five years of working with Donald Dell uh, was like an apprenticeship. Like I watched him, and I also learned from the second senior partner, gentleman named Frank Craig. Frank, in many ways, was probably more of a mentor to me than Donald. Frank taught me how to think as a businessman, how to write, um, you know, how to be really analytical in business, which I was in inherently. And so I watched these gentlemen negotiate, market, write proposals, talk to companies, and I try to figure out not what they did well, but what didn't they do well. And I think I've, I was one of these people, that I didn't want to be like Donald. I want to be like myself because I do not want to be an actor. I didn't want to be playing a role because at some point our personalities were almost polar opposites. He was a person that loved to wing it. He didn't prepare a lot. I was a person, I think I think very quickly on my, th- my feet, but I wanted to go in knowing that I knew more about the subject than anybody. So
0: did you link preparation to confidence? Yes. And then how would you separate confidence, cockiness, and pride?
1: Great. Great question. I think that, I think that to be really good in crunch time, you have to feel you're prepared. You know, very few people are gonna wing it under intense pressure. If you haven't, if you're a golfer, you wanna see the shot before you make it. You know, if you're a basketball player, you watch guys practicing a free throw in the air, like an air guitar with the free throw before they before they shoot it. They wanna feel it, they've, they've been there before.
0: There's actually a study done that showed when guys went like this and they practiced it, they're more likely to make it. And they actually showed that Um, there was a correlation between their first free throw and their second free throw. And if you remember Steve Nash, he would always practice the shot, visualize it, and then shoot the second. So that speaks to it. So uh, confidence linked to preparation. What about, what does cockiness bring out in you?
1: I I think that in the business that I've been in, I think in many ways you are selling a concept to somebody. You're trying to get them to go to a place you want them to get to. They want to be in a different place. They want to pay you less money or they don't want to make the deal. They don't want to make the trade. They don't want to draft your player. And it's like being a lawyer. You have to present a case um, and you have to argue the case. You can't be humble, you know, because you're an advocate. You're not being neutral. You're not flipping a coin. It's like I used to say Coach Smith used to tell me when I was young that I was a little too cocky. I said, coach, I'm not a point guard distributing the ball. I'm a shooting guard. I've got to make the shot. I've got to believe that I can make the shot. I can't be humble, you know, about my ability to make the shot. And because I started this business at such a young age, I was, I probably overdid it. I look back and think I was probably a little cockier than I needed to be because it was all new to me. And it was also, I was living my dream. I looked around and I pinched myself sometimes, I said, holy, I'm working with James Worthy and John Lucas, and Phil Ford, the National Player of the Year, and Boomer said James Lofton, all-time leading receiver in pro football. You know, I've done my second contract, just gotten the highest deal in the history of the NFL by 30%. I pinched myself to think, I'm the same guy that got rejected by Cornell and Harvard Law School, and you know, here I am with no pedigree, a little bit of like the black sheep in the family, and, I, and was I too cocky? I was probably a little too cocky, you know. How Over about pride? Th- I always believe I'm a very proud person, but I was always very in touch with myself. I never wanted to let my pride or my ego interfere in my judgment. I was very aware that there are situations where you're going mono-a-mono mono against, I mean, I, I would name names. I watch players in the NBA, really terrific players, who play against Steph Curry, for example, or they'll play against Kevin Durant, and they lose focus on winning the game. They want to go mano a mano and outperform that player. That's not their goal, and they lose the game. And so I was very conscious of the fact that I didn't want to have my pride or my ego interfere in my performance. And that's a very hard thing to step back, but because I'm inherently a very analytical, introspective person, and I'm aware that I have You know, I need to have pride. You know, people say, do you have an ego? No successful people doesn't have, uh, no successful person doesn't have a strong ego. Ego means self. If you don't have a strong concept of yourself and you're competing against the best in the world, you're competing against the Red Arab and you're competing against the Bob Wolfs and, you know, Lee Steinberg. If you don't have a really good sense of confidence, it's hopeless, you're not gonna.
0: So here's how I interpret those three and many interpretations. Confidence, belief in myself. Cockiness, believing that I'm better than the other person. Pride, believing that I'm part of something bigger than myself. Whether it's my last name, my religion, my city, uh, my team. Pride in something bigger than me. Pride in providing for my family and taking pride in that. Or pride in representing somebody in their family and having pride in that. Then the other thing that you said that really struck me was the humility piece. Um, I believe that you need to be really humble when you're preparing. And that's what you talked about is like, I knew I I always wanted to come in prepared and I knew I had to, I knew every option and and really study it. And that, if I'm humble when I'm preparing, then yeah, if I'm a little bit cocky when I'm performing, so what? Show me a great athlete who doesn't have some narcissism. Uh, Show me an elite, great athlete, Uh, whether it's Floyd Mayweather, Michael Phelps, Michael Jordan, Serena Williams, you have to have a a pinch of, yeah, I'm amazing. Mm -hmm. Steph Curry, in order for a guy to look like him and have his build and to step across half court and believe that he's going to make a shot, there's a Mm -hmm. little bit of narcissism that goes into that. Well, Uh, it's more than that. I think if you look, I I use Michael
1: and Tiger as examples. When Michael Jordan was at the height of his career, if your team was six points ahead, you knew he was going to come get you at the end of the game. If you were six points behind, you knew it was impossible. When Tiger was in his prime, if he was in second place on Sunday wearing his red shirt, you knew he was coming for you. Tiger on the prowl. And he's going to he's, he believed he was going to beat you. And I think that that arrogance, if you will, that's a very positive arrogance, intimidated their competitors. And I think in my business, it wasn't a sense of, Cocky is the wrong word. We had a track record. And in the day when you could negotiate all the contracts, there there wasn't a rookie wage scale, there were no maximums. When Patrick Ewing made 50% more money as a rookie than the highest paid veteran in the history of the NBA, Jabbar made, before he ever dribbled the ball. He made three times more than Olajuwon made the year before as the number one pick. No one had to tell me, hey, you've just set the ultimate, you've just climbed Mount Everest when most people are climbing foothills. I knew that, and I wanted to use that not to say that, you know, wow, look how great I am, but to say, hey, to the next guy, do you want to be Jabbar or do you want to be Ewing? I wanted to use the, the success that I had enjoyed as a marketing tool to promote myself and my clients. I want to tell the GMs, hey, I don't represent Jabbar. If you only want to sign a guy for Jabbar, you know, you could have him. If you want Patrick Ewing here, it's going to cost you.
0: But the mindset that you have to have when you're preparing is completely different than the mindset when you're actually performing. So, and what I mean by that is like, the perfectionist, the idea of being a perfectionist is awesome when I'm preparing. Tiger, when we see Tiger hitting balls till the sun's going down, he's neurotic. Like MJ waking up at 5 a.m. and starting the breakfast club. Like you're neurotic. Um, Like you're the best player in the world. You're nuts. But, like, that, but that preparation
1: is beautiful. what gave him the ultimate sense of confidence because he probably, let's say in theory that Michael could have lied on the, laid on the beach and not practiced at all. He probably still would have been the best player. But because of his preparation, it gave him this incredible extra level of confidence that he not only was physically gifted, but he had like outworked everybody, he outworked the most, the least talented guy on his team, and
0: he knew he was gonna be. So now the mindset when I'm performing is, I'm the shit, like, I I am, I'm the greatest. It's, But when I'm preparing, it's, I'm gonna outwork the 12th guy or the 15th guy on the roster. But the mindset when I'm performing, um, you mentioned, like, shooting, like, I'm a shooter. I, You know, if you're Reggie Miller, if you're Ray Allen, if you're Kyle Korver, if you're Steph Curry, and you miss your first eight shots, yeah, you're taking the ninth. If you're Josh Smith, you should've taken the first eight shots in the first place. Exactly. So well, like, but, but the, that mindset- but,
1: but that's the point where the Reggie Millers know he's a great shooter. That's his strength. He probably knows I'm not a great defender. Don't rely on me to block the shot at the last minute. I'm gonna outshoot the guy. Whereas Montambo or, you know, someone else, you know, DeAndre Rodman. Jordan, you know, a person who's really successful has to play to his strengths. So you have to improve your weaknesses but the end of the day, there are very few people in any walk of life that are great in everything. Athletes, if you know, I hear people oftentimes say, oh, he's a great scorer, but he's not a great defender. Well, so what? You know, the guys are great. DeAndre Jordan, not a great scorer, but he's first team all NBA defense. You know, if you build a team, you have the people that do that complement each other. And I wanted to have a team of people around me, always, that complemented my skills. Um, but I wanted the players to know that you can objective like before analytics, look and see what the guys are making. If you're a player coming out, if, if Samson makes $920,000 as the number one pick in 1983, and Elijah makes $1. $1.2 million as the number one pick in 1984, and Yui makes $3.2 million as the number one pick in 1985, If you're Brad Doherty in 1986, do you have a choice? That's not a choice. You know, you're gonna gonna pick based on the tracker. Just like if you're looking at a stock, and one stock has gone up, tripled in the last year, and the other stock has stayed flat, you're gonna pick the one that you think has the best performance. And so when I say that I didn't wanna sell my personality, it's not because I I have a good personality, I can't get along with people, but I think personality is a very subjective determination. You might like women who are blondes, and I might like women who are brunettes, but if someone has 16 hundred other their college boards and you're applying for a job, you can't dismiss the fact that that person has hit the highest level of...
0: So I don't know if you know this, the San Francisco Giants, who have been one of the most successful organizations in the last 10 years, um, they have something called merit-based perform playing. So the whole thing, playing time, is purely based on merit. So anyone that goes, and Bruce Bochy, who's the manager there, is seemingly, as an outsider, a very simple guy. Um, he does, he's not this big personality, this charismatic Pete Carroll uh, you know, type of guy. Um, but people know when they go to the Giants, he's going to play the guys that are going to help them win games. And it's so simplistic. Well,
1: look but look Bill, 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 th-
0: Right? I to mean, your job.
1: I think they have the best. I think New England has the best organization in professional football. I think San Antonio is the best organization in professional basketball. I don't think you'd say that Paul that Greg Popovich or Bill Belichick are like, you know, charismatic personalities. They're great at what they do. And they don't try to wing it. They they win on preparation, insight, instant, um, and, and, so, and merit,
0: it's merit-based.
1: And, and they hold people accountable, yeah. you know, and, and I, I tell my clients, I'm responsible. If I don't do a good job, you can fire me, you know. But we're gonna be very consistent. We have a track record for 42 years of doing at the highest level for the best players. That's not a coincidence.
0: So I want to pick your brain a little bit because you've been around so many great athletes in basketball and football. So I want to know James Lofton, Boomer Esaias, and Michael, uh, James Worthy, Alonzo Mourning, Juwan Howard, Takemé Matambo, Patrick Ewing, all the, uh, Mike Bibby, you know, you can go through the generations. And I think today we're obsessed with this term millennial and this label that there's this group of people these days that are all millennials. And you have to treat them this way because they were brought up this way. And I have an issue with it because I'm born in 1984, which is a year that I know is an interesting year for you. Um, But I'm labeled a millennial because of my age. And I think about race, class, gender, familial uh, upbringing, um, sexuality, all these factors that make us who we are and where millennial fits into my list of who I am as a person, I think is pretty low on that list. Um, but I want to bring it back to the athletes and find out, give me some common themes or some common things that you saw in these elite performers who most people listening to this will never interact with. And you got to see an up close personal, uh, perspective on them and throw in the coaches as well, because being around guys like John Thompson and Mike Krzyzewski or Tommy Amaker, um, they also are performers to me. So can you sort of give me examples or stories that, Speak to the mindset of those people.
1: Sure, I think one thing. I think the the generation of great players that I grew up with, if you will, Michael, Patrick, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, those those level Elajuan, those guys hated to lose. And if you think, would you say
0: hated to lose more than loved to win? Because that's a phrase that I hear from athletes a lot. I think they wanted both, but.
1: I think that culturally, if I could paint a picture, if you look at players like Bill Walton, won 88 games in a row in college. I don't know how many he lost in high school. I'd be surprised if in high school and college combined, Bill Walton lost five games. Okay, now if you could, Michael Jordan is the most competitive human being I've ever met in my life. Patrick Ewing didn't lose many games at Georgetown. Magic Johnson didn't lose many games at high school or at Michigan State. Those guys, their DNA, they were like the Terminator. Like no matter how much money you paid them, no matter how much publicity you gave them, no matter how much success they enjoyed, they were like chemically programmed to compete. Almost like they were a rope, you know, a robot like the Terminator. Today, young players 14, 15, they play AU basketball, and they go to Las Vegas for a tournament, and in one weekend they'll play 10 games. They'll probably be like 6-4, and 7-3. and three. They can lose more games in a weekend than Bill Walton lost his entire career until they got to the NBA. And they get more used to losing. And I think they a little bit lose, lose their edge because losing culturally has become more acceptable in today's millennial age. I think they're playing way too many games. The games don't mean as much. Give you another layer.
0: So, you would say that those
1: athletes feared failure? No, they hated failure. I don't think they feared it, they just hated losing. I'll give you a better example. If you looked in the 70s, 80s, the NBA season ends, you're from Los Angeles, you're Marcus Johnson, Richard Washington, Reggie Miller, you're going to go back in the summer, you're going to work out and eventually you're going to gravitate to Paulie Pavilion on the UCLA campus. You're going to play pickup ball. There's 40 teams in the gym to play. You're on the floor with your group. If you lose, you're not going to get back on the floor that day. There's 39 other teams playing winner-take-all. You're not getting paid. It's not official. No TV. You are not going to allow the other team to beat you. It's like being in the NBA Finals or the Super Bowl. I don't think today in the summer. I think the younger players, not that they're less competitive, but they're more. They accept losing more because they have lost more. As they as they prepared to come into the pros, I think that's a terrible cultural mistake, as we allow basketball to. Do. I don't think you should ever be in a position where you allow failure to be an option. Michael wrote a book. I cannot accept not trying. Um, and I think that's a big problem in the culture of of sports today. Is like,
0: but in the old that... days
1: there were no wild cards. There were no, you know, if you didn't in the in the very old days, if you remember this, you study the history of the. But history.
0: if they fail, so so I agree with you. I don't I don't think I think we have glorified failure into being okay and. Uh, I we've think, allowed it to be
1: okay. I'm not saying we. I don't know if we've glorified
0: it. We've allowed it to be an acceptable. Well, like option. Silicon Valley would say, "Fail forward, fail forward, fail forward." If you if you go to those but it's different. Areas. If you're innovating,
1: if you're innovating, you, you. But if you're on that court at Poly, or you're at the court at the Urban Coalition at Dunbar High School in Washington D.C., and you're Moses Malone and you are playing you lose, you're out. You're not going to lose. This it's not just kiss and giggle summer. This is. Real life, life and death, you're not gonna lose. And I think that that perfectionism, if I can use it, in when you're not getting paid, that's what makes the Jordans and the Bradys great because they can't accept losing at anything. It could be practice, it could be three on three, five on five, one on one. It could be a skull session with the coach, a quiz. Everything is a competition and they're not geared to fail. Now, they're not gonna win every game, but, the idea of losing is so foreign to the mentality. They are what I, and I think if I can draw an analogy without sounding unreasonably egotistical, I can't perform on the basketball court. But in my, on my court, on the business court, I think that my best players and my best clients, the greatest coaches saw in me that I had a level of perfectionism. I wanted to be the best. I was driven to get the most out of what I had. I was, I was compet- as competitive at what I did in business as they were in sports, and that formed a bond, sort of an unusual bond. It wasn't a you know because they they came to recognize like a very unique
0: connection because they're so competitive so so competitive spirit trumps. Like, the the ability to compete and say, I'm not losing, not on my watch, you would say would link all... That would be a common thread that we would stitch together between the great athletes that you Absolutely. have. Absolutely. Competitive I
1: think, spirit. I think that they took it upon themselves to not allow their team to lose whatever it took, whether it took making a great pass if you're Magic Johnson or hitting the last shot over Byron Russell if you're Michael Jordan or making the impossible pass if you're Tom Brady or... A great run, if you're, you know, Gale Sayers or Jimmy Brown. I mean, those they didn't accept that they weren't going to win.
0: So I want to go in the other direction, and uh, I know I've talked to you about this uh, when we've traveled together. But can you sort of talk about the downside of greatness? Um, you were someone who you even said with your blood clot, like I'm out there doing my thing. I'm I'm running around. Can you talk about like the downside that comes with being great or elite at something? And not just from your own perspective, but from what you saw with clients. Um, You don't have to get specifically into each individual, but talk about the downside of what it's like when you're not settling for mediocre and you are pushing for I'll tell you one of the
1: great business lessons I ever learned. When I was in my 30s, John Thompson called me into his office one day, as only he can, and said, son, you have a very serious problem. And right away I was scared to death. And I said, really, like, what is that? And he said to me, do you want people to like you? I said, of course, that's a very basic human instinct. And he said, you're in the wrong business. When you walk into an owner's office and ask him to pay $100 million for a person like Allen Iverson or Alonzo Mourning or you know whoever it might be, he's going to hate your guts. He's going to think you're gouging him. You know, the player's not worth that much. Um, if that bothers you, quit the business. He said, well, you should worry about, that do your clients like you because you've just gotten them $100 million, and does the owner respect you? And I can't think of the, my mother's mantra of shooting for the stars if I ever have gotten a more wise, insightful piece of advice from anyone in my life that really put everything, as only John could take something very complex like that and simplify it in a simple line, it really changed my perspective. And I wouldn't say that it totally took away my desire. to I said, of course we want people to like you, but if you have to choose between being popular or being successful and respected, my job was to get the job done. My job was not to lose four games in a weekend. And... Along the way, I hoped that I could do it in a classy way, in a professional way that people would respect what I was doing, but I, it got me over the bridge. And I think that some athletes, in terms of greatness, they want to be loved. And you know, if you look at someone like Michael, who is loved, he's one of the most popular athletes of all time, there are people who say he was a tyrant. And yes, he, he could be a tyrant because he couldn't accept losing. He punched out Steve Kerr in practice one day because he didn't think he was playing defense hard enough. He, when he was at the Wizards, he held them to a high standard. A lot of people said he was a tyrant. Well, they were losing. Do you want to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing? Is that a, is that an acceptable outcome? It's not to someone who wants to be successful. You have to change a losing game. You know, if you're in sports, and you're running the football in the first half and you're down by four touchdowns, you have to be brain dead to come out in the second half and say, no, if we keep running. Eventually, we're gonna. You got to change. It's not working. And I think that, I think that great athletes have to learn that when you get to be the best, a lot of people are gonna to try to take you down. There's a human nature. You're gonna be in the crosshairs of all sorts of criticism. People who don't know you, don't know what your motivations are. I used to be amused when I read sports writers who said, David's really greedy. I was making $230,000. I was hardly greedy. Money didn't really matter to me. I was living my dream. You know, other people would say, uh, you know, you're this or that. Now. It wasn't a question of being egotistical. They did, they'd never even ever spoken to me. They didn't know what made me tick. The money didn't make me tick. It didn't make me tick when I wasn't making any money, when I was making 13,000, and it didn't make me tick when I sold my business for a lot of money. The fact that I was living my dream, like that's what made me tick. The fact that someone like Michael Jordan would stick with me his entire playing career, as I went from Del Craigle to pro-serve, to fame, SFX, live patient back to fame. His loyalty, like, I wanted to kill for that guy because he supported me, as did John Thompson and Coach K and Patrick, and yeah, that was really special to me. That gave me, if I needed more motivation, I really didn't, I was pretty motivated. Like, I thought, wow, these guys have really put their trust in me, I've gotta come through.
0: You mentioned the word love and that everybody wants to be loved. What does that word mean to you?
1: To me, I'd say that I know I'm in a business that it's hard to be loved universally. You know, agents, just the word agent conjures up very negative feelings about people. Um, For many years, I didn't call myself an agent. Coach Thompson used to always say to me, David, you're a lawyer. I don't look at you as my agent, you're my lawyer. And I'm a lawyer. Uh, I'm a lawyer. Being being an agent is something I think I probably spend less than 5% of my time doing, making deals is the easy part. The hard part is managing the players. When crises come up and you've got to give them really good advice, you're not being an agent. You're being an advisor, a lawyer, confidant. And you've got to have the confidence in yourself to look a high, very high-profile athlete in the eye and tell him something you know that he doesn't want to hear from you. He wants to, on the surface, he wants you to be supportive. He might have made a mistake. He needs to apologize. He needs to acknowledge something. He needs to take responsibility. And you could take the easy way out and say, oh God, you're getting screwed. It's really unfair. And you're going to exacerbate the problem or you could take it head on and say, I know what you want me to tell you, but I'm not going to tell you that because that's not what you need to hear. You need to do this.
0: So we've been talking for a while now and I really appreciate it. And uh, since I'm not big time yet with my podcast, I'll throw in a plug for the, for the bald truth. Uh, because I read that book and it's amazing how much of the information that you're talking about over the past hour or so that we've been talking is consistent with that book. So I think you've developed this framework that is your belief system and your values and how you see the world. And it's, it's very set in stone in a lot of ways, but a part of that book that stuck out to me was the flexibility that you talked about and the ability to adapt and adjust. So I'm curious when did that book come out? Uh, I think at 09. Okay, so in the last seven, eight years, what has changed from your mindset or your perspective since that book came out? Well,
1: number one, I think the players have changed. You talked about, I don't want to use the word millennials, but the culture of basketball is dramatically different today than it was in, in the prime of my career. And while my values haven't changed, my approach has to change. It's like if you want to play I went to Syracuse when the coach Ben Schwarzwald had won the national championship with Ernie Davis in 1960, playing one platoon football. Now you ain't gonna win the national championship in 1969, playing one platoon football. So you have to adapt. All successful people adapt. They don't change their inherent values, your values don't change, but your approach has to change. And to be successful in managing people, you have to find an approach that works. a lot of the things that you have, you know, I, I, I had a client um, who was overweight, and I really like this client, he's very talented, and we talked a lot about his conditioning. And one day he said, David, don't you ever get tired of talking to me about conditioning? I said, do I ever get tired? I was tired before we started talking about it. I said, how many times in my career I think I ever talked about conditioning and weight with Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Tambo, Elton Brand, Juwan Howard, Adrian Dantley, never, not once. And so do I like to talk about it? No, but I have to talk about it because this is an issue that is be determinative of how successful you are. You have to overcome that obstacle. If you don't, it's gonna hold you back from being as successful as your talent and your, and your knowledge of the game, your basketball IQ is gonna allow you to be. And so I think you have to adapt and I, you know, I'm pretty old school. I'm not trying to become new school, but I know that there's certain approaches that aren't gonna work. And as I say, you gotta change, or lose the game. I can be stubborn and stick to, stick to my guns, but I'm gonna lose the game, and I don't, I don't wanna lose.
0: So there's like two, two things that I thought about from your book. One was the Ben Gordon story, which was interesting, where you sort of admit maybe the approach I went with wasn't the best for that situation. Uh, and then you also talk about Stefan Marbury uh, in a different sense, in a different situation than Ben, um, but that just not being necessarily a good fit. Um, so it's just interesting to me to think like, uh, Marbury's probably still playing in China somewhere where they have a statue of him and you know, living the life of whatever he wants to do. But it's just interesting to but think. He's not,
1: but he's not living his dream, coming out of Coney Allen to be one of the great players of sure. all time in the NBA because he didn't adapt his behavior to what it took for him to be, and he was a very hard-working player. He was incredibly talented. That's why, you know, you look at certain players who stand the test of time, you know, play John Stockton and Michael Jordan. We've guys who played 19 and Tombo 20 years. I mean, I, it's a great example. Like, I told players like Tombo and Glenn Rice after they played 10 years in the NBA, and I wanted them to get a ring. I remember I told us to Glenn Rice, who won a college championship at Michigan in 89, and he's scoring 24 points a game in Charlotte, and he's never gonna win a championship. And I said, I want you to go to a championship team. I want them to go to the Lakers. And he said, I'll never be the man on the Lakers. I said, so what? You can be the man on Charlotte. Don't you ever really want to win? Isn't How important is winning? And I think the greatest players, now he needed a push. Matambo didn't want to go to Houston because he didn't want to be a backup to Yao Ming. And I said, why not? You know, Yao Ming's a great center. Don't you want to get a ring? And both of those guys, after they got to the second team, Glenn Rice, they win a championship. We we're sitting at the grill at LA, kiss me on my bald head. And he said, God, thanks for being so stubborn. I never would have done it on my own. You pounded me. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. Matambo loved being in Houston. He forged an amazing relationship with Yao Ming, an amazing relationship with Les Alexander, the owner who helped him with his foundation. And while he didn't quite get to the, you know, to the ring, he got to the finals, it was a very special experience for him. So I think you have to not only adapt yourself, but you have to have the confidence to try to persuade the people you're working for that they need to adapt. You can't
0: just keep doing the same thing the same way over and over again. So two thoughts for you. Number one, the person who I just interviewed uh, the previous podcast with, talks about a story of going into John Thompson, Big John's office, and seeing a deflated basketball in his office and asking Coach Thompson, why do you have a deflated basketball? And he said, well, one day the basketball will stop and you need to have a plan for when that day comes. Um, And I think about you talking about Takembe Matambo and the value that came with him going to Houston after the ball stopped bouncing. And then the second thing that I thought of as you were talking is you said you never were comfortable with the term agent. Uh, And how coach called you lawyer. But the way you describe what you were doing for Glenn Rice is really a coach. And the definition of a coach and the history of coach. I don't know if you know the history of coach. Uh, The history of coach, it comes from the Hungarian word coaches. uh, Because the carriage or the coach was invented in Hungary. Really? And what happened was they took that word coaches, K-O-C-S, Um, and they use that carriage slash coach to help people get where they are to where they wanted to go. And so the idea of a carriage or a coach is that it helps people get from where they are to where they want to go. And then Oxford, University of Oxford, liked that a coach, um, and the idea of a coach, uh, a coach in education or a tutor, their job as a tutor at Oxford was to help students get from where they are to where they want to go. And then the word coach got adapted into life coach, uh, obviously uh, um, athletic coach, academic coach. Um, But I think about your story about Glenn Rice, helping him get from where he was in Charlotte to where he needed to be in LA to win a championship was very much what a coach does. So I'll leave you with that. I know people call me a coach uh, with the teams that I work with. Some of them call me coach and I'm sure Coach Thompson or Coach K I uh, would say that that is such an endearing term. I would imagine other than father or dad, uh, the word, the name coach is something. So I'm going to knight you with being a coach. I, I want to end because we've been talking forever, and I know the two of us could probably talk no, have, for hours. I, I make my living talking. You might have to open up a bottle of wine and, and keep it going. Sure. Uh, but what I want to do next is something I call preferences. So I'm going to put you on the hot seat and just ask you preferences on what you prefer. Uh, and how you see the world. and We've addressed some mm-hmm. of these, so it'll be fun. You're not allowed to look at them. Um, but do you prefer preparation or performing? Performance. Interesting, why?
1: Because, because I take preparation for granted. I'm always gonna prepare. That's not an option, that's a given. And I, I wanna feel the preparation will allow me to perform. If I prepare but I don't perform, then I didn't, uh, I'm missing something.
0: Do you, and... prefer, do you prefer yes sir? Yes, sir, guys, or why guys?
1: i am so for why. Yes,
0: sir, players, yeah. or why players? Um, I think
1: that when you're, when you're competing, I think there has to be a certain level of respect and of willingness to sublimate your ego and personality to the good of the team, so you have to be willing to buy in. Uh, but I don't expect anyone to have blind allegiance to things they don't believe in. But I think that if everyone's questioning the coach, you're never
0: going to win. Would you say you're a Y guy or a yes sir guy? Uh, I
1: think I'm a Y
0: guy. Yeah, I mean, you go back to your childhood with mom and dad and that relationship and dad really wanting you to be a yes sir guy and mom having the patience to say, no, it's okay, Like, let me explain this to you. Um, but I agree with you. I don't think the world can all be Y guys and I don't think a team can be filled with Y guys. And I would even make the argument that there's a time when we're performing that yes sir and having trust in a coach is necessary, um, but I think every coach also wants their guys to ask why when they're preparing, uh, I think it's as a well. Question
1: when When you ask, them. I think I think in practice or alone, you go to the coach's office and say, hey, "We played zone. Like, why did we do that?" And the coach could explain it to you. But in the middle of the game, when you've got to make critical battlefield, if you will, decisions,
0: I don't think that's the time to question. Do you prefer system or autonomy? Do you prefer the most valuable player or the most improved player? Most valuable player. Yeah, there's an element to you that, that really appreciates the spotlight, and I don't mean it from an uh, ego standpoint, but, yeah, put that spotlight on me and, like, give me, I'll give think me that. I, I
1: think that. I think that in almost every walk of life, you want to find someone who's a difference maker. That, that, that MVP is the person that's gonna make a difference. And people spend a lot of time talking about someone who's an average person that went from being a five to a six, and I I really respect people who make the most of themselves, but when you wanna win, you want the person that's gonna be the biggest. I know in my own life, you know, I look at people who've really made an impact on my life. My mom, number one, I say as a male, I've said this many times, you know, i probably learned more from John Thompson as a mentor, an advisor, He's forced me to look at things in ways that no one else has had the courage or the insight, the intelligence, you know, to do.
0: What's his gift? What's my gift? John Thompson's gift.
1: I think John Thompson has an amazing, uh, he's like a PhD in human nature. He looks at the most complex situations and he simplifies them. He looks, he simplifies a very complex situation in a way that's very understandable to anyone at any level. It could be a player, it could be a business person, he's, he's a really a brilliant man.
0: Because when I, li- I used to listen to his radio show and he came off as just very philosophical, um, but you're right, he would, he would use analogies or metaphors in a simplistic way, but he was talking about deep stuff and philosophical stuff. Um, do you prefer a resume or eulogy?
1: eulogy, because it means someone's accomplished something. A resume is your way of making a proposal of why you should get the job. Eulogy is your way of celebrating someone who's done the job.
0: Do you prefer your generation or your parents' generation? My generation. Why?
1: Because I think that um, my parents' generation was very, was more regimented. Like I think there was, it was more, it was not enough why and too much yes, sir. Um, I think our generation questioned a lot of things and opened up new vistas, new horizons. There's more of a sense that we can accomplish things, that my parents' generation coming out of the Depression was more like holding on to what you had as opposed to trying to claim new territory.
0: Prefer positive feedback or negative feedback?
1: Um, positive feedback. I think really successful people analyze themselves and find out the weaknesses. Um, but I think I think you really need to be in the, the right mindset to to
0: perform. Would you say you're your own harshest critic? Absolutely. So like, you know, if you talked about people saying in the newspaper, David Fox greedy or this or that, but you felt like when when you looked at things that you were the one that was your own harshest critic.
1: I'll put it this way. I I say this without trying to sound dramatic. I never made a deal in my life that I think I could have done a better job, you know? There are times you realize enough's enough. Like I reached a certain level of maturity when I got into my 40s, when you realize like, you know, if you got a million, maybe you can get a million and one, but the cost of the extra hundred is gonna be so negative to your client, You're squeezing the blood out of the grape, uh, you know, and you have to learn when to stop. But um, I always felt I could do better. I was always very critical of myself. I think that's what made me good. Like I, I was never satisfied. And that's also a weakness because when you work with other people, you know, those really high standards, it's like a, it's like why great players generally don't make great coaches because they can't begin to understand how the players they're coaching can't do what they're asking them to do. Sometimes they're just not capable of it. You have to adjust your expectations and I know I'm a very demanding person because I demand a lot of myself but most people don't have the confidence, some people don't have the talent to perform at that level.
0: I look at satisfaction as being different than complacency. Um, And I think complacency is the enemy of success. No question. And the moment we become complacent, we're not moving forward, we're not learning, we're not growing. But satisfaction? Like, no, I think we want to feel a sense of satisfaction, like a sense of accomplishment.
1: That's why positive feedback is so important. You have to, you know, the most fun paragraph from my entire book for me. When I got done writing the book, the publisher asked me at the end of every chapter, which had, a, a you know, a theme, to write like four or five like fall facts. And I did it just totally spur of the moment. The best one, I wrote that the last major league baseball player to bat 400 was Ted Williams over 60 years ago. It's considered one of the most iconic records in all of sports. Now, if you analyze it, what it means is that 60% of the time that Ted Williams came to the plate, he failed to get a hit. Learn to define success. You know, if you got a 40 out of test, you'd be failing. But in baseball, 400 is stratospheric.
0: Did you ever interact with John Wooden?
1: Uh, I met him once or twice, thought he was a charming guy. I met him when he was 91 years old. We gave a speech together in, uh, at the NCAA in
0: Minnesota. Yeah, I mean, I just think he has a definition for success. It's satisfaction lies in knowing that you gave your best and gave full effort and uh, really focuses on process.
1: I mean, I love the Teddy Roosevelt quote where, you know, the man in the arena whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood. I think we live in an age today where everybody wants to be Siskel and Ebert. They may know nothing about... I mean, I'll give you, like, a great example, and I don't say this to be defensive. Like, here's my theory. Like, I'll give it to you an analogy. Tiger Woods in his prime goes out on Saturday, the next to the last day of the tournament, hits the ball the best he's hit it in five years. Everything that could possibly go wrong. He hits one foot, hits the pin, bounces off the pin, goes in the water, he gets a double bogey. He hits a sprinkler head on the green, and the ball goes in the water. He shoots a 74. Wakes up the next morning, and all the sports writers are like, gosh, Tiger is really off today. And he thinks, are you freaking kidding me? Like, do you even know anything about golf? That was the best I've hit the ball in five years. I had freaky bad luck. Sunday goes out in the finals, and the exact opposite happens. He just can't find the stroke, but everything that went wrong the first day goes right to schedule This time he hits the sprinkler head, it goes in the cup. He hits the card path, it bounces on the green. And he shoots a 69, and they write, Tigers back. He writes, Why do we even bother reading these guys? They don't even have a clue to what's going on. In my career, I look at I look at a situation a couple of years ago. We accepted the qualifying offer for Greg Monroe because he didn't want to go back to his old team. And if he got a if he got an offer from a free agent team, the old team would match. And so we didn't gasp for any offer sheets. And all the sports rides are uh, Fox getting so old he can't even get an offer for Greg Monroe. And I I look at that and say, like, are you kidding me? Like do you think we try to get an offer? If we want them to stay on his team, we just would negotiate a deal with the team. Like, we're capable of doing that. And you realize that they don't even understand. The people who are critiquing you and evaluating you don't even understand what you're doing. And if if you let what they're writing bother you, it's wasted energy. You almost have to totally ignore it um, and do what you believe in, whether they agree, disagree. Like, what difference does it make? Greg Monroe knew exactly what we are doing. His coach, John Thompson III knew exactly what we were doing. We had a strategy, we fulfilled the strategy. He became an unrestricted free agent and had four teams offering the max that he could choose whichever team he wanted to go to. And so a lot of times the criticism, being in the public eye, intimidates people from doing what they really believe because they they can't stand the criticism.
0: It'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 50 years. I thought, I was like, nobody will ever want to become president because who knows what's on everyone's smartphones but i think the last presidency might have might have changed that a little bit. Uh, i really wonder whether
1: Donald Trump really wanted to be the president or he wants you see like how far he can take it the pressures and it's, it's going to be a very interesting for you.
0: it will. Uh, do you prefer culture or talent?
1: culture or talent? yeah. culture.
0: really cuz you've used the word talent multiple times today and i thought for sure you'd say talent. why did you say culture?
1: I, I, I think that i think that you have to have um, a definition, a structure, in, or, in order to win. And you can find some very talented people that aren't willing to sublimate their egos for the good of the, of the team. If you're talking about individual sport, pure, you don't need culture. But in football, basketball, soccer, you, know, you need to create an environment. That's why, in an ironic way, the Patriots have had very few guys over the last 10 years that are first-team All-Pro but they have the best team in football. The Spurs don't have you know, they have three great players in Duncan Park and Ginobili, but cult- they have the best culture, the most international guys, they're the most innovative, and they've the mo- won the most games of any team in the league. It's not a surprise. They're, I tell teams from time to time when they sign a player, San Antonio wouldn't sign that player. That's to me, is like a litmus test. They really do it. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they really do it the right way.
0: Momentum or the moment? Hmm.
1: That's a really tough one. Um, I'd say the moment. Because? The moment. It's sort of like asking, do you want, do you want the most improved of the MVP? Like, I think you want to reach the pinnacle. The moment is, you know, you've reached the end, you, you've crossed the finish line. Like you may be gaining on the runner in front of you, but you're in 10th place. You may be have the best record in April, but you're not going to make the playoffs. You know, you have to get there. There's no excuse for not getting there.
0: Liked or respected? Respected. And you, I think you covered that pretty good so far. Risk taker or rule follower? Risk taker. Because? Because I
1: think that I think that people who are really successful, to quote Bill Gates's book, see the road ahead. You know, they're not. They don't want to be complacent and keep doing it the same way over and over again. They want to be adaptive and and take calculated risks to reach the As the same investments, there's no reward without a risk.
0: Starter on a losing team or towel waiver on a winning team?
1: Starter on a losing team or?
0: Towel waiver on a winning team. Um,
1: I always want to be on a winning team.
0: But you said earlier, you said everybody wants to start in the NBA. You know, you should want to start, you, you know. But I think the ultimate goal, if you think what
1: is the ultimate goal in sports is to win I think I would never want to be an owner to have a player that'd rather be a, lose and get his stats and get honors as opposed to players willing to, I mean look at Durant, you know I, I looked at the leading scorers in the league today, Golden State doesn't have any of the, you know at the top, because with Durant's presence, Curry's taken, his scoring has dropped, and Clay Thompson's has dropped and I think, you know there's a very good chance they're going to win the whole thing that's what i love about kevin durant is that while a lot of people criticize the move he moved because he wants to win i mean let's face it lebron came back to cleveland not because he wanted to be home because he did a risk he did an assessment didn't think he could win another championship miami bosch was having health issues Dwayne has some you know issues with his body and he went back to Cleveland with a young Kyrie Irving, a young Tristan Thompson. They brought in Kevin Love, and they won. And I think that was a really smart move. I think the PR spin that he was coming home was great to counter the bad PR spin when he left, but he, he came to win.
0: Balance or specific obsession?
1: Balance, because to be really successful, you have to be compulsive, but you have to can't be monolithic you have to you have to you have to balance it out and and would you
0: have answered it that way 20 years
1: ago oh i think i was out of balance 20 years ago i think when i hit 40 when i hit 40 years old i I made a conscious effort to look around and see who i thought was managing their success well not who was the most successful Um, in america you look at people who are considered to be successful, It could be a YouTube performer who's got 20 million followers that you've never heard of, they're really successful. You could invent the first golf play the potato chip and make a ton of money. Someone invented a tool to open up CDs some years ago. Like You could find something really bizarre and become really successful. Very few people manage their success well. When I hit 40, I looked around, a lot of different people. One of the people that really stood out to me was Coach K because he's not humble, but he's not cocky. He's confident. He tells you he's a really good coach. He doesn't shy away and say, oh gosh, it was the players. You know, he knows he's a good coach. He'll tell you he's a good coach. He'll tell you why he's a good coach, but he does it in a really classy way. And I wanted to find a good balance for myself between being successful, not being falsely modest, and not being overtly boastful.
0: Do you think athletes have the ability to have balance?
1: Well, if you think about it, it's, it's a, I don't want balance is a term that connotes a lot of different things. It's a things. loaded term. To be a great running back, you have to have great balance. To be, you know, a great player in basketball, balance is very good. Player.
0: So I would say balance in the sense of balancing family or balancing um, other al- elements of your life.
1: I think you have to balance it because they're, they're all in play. And I think, if you, I think you have to have a commitment to one, but you've got to keep them all in balance. Okay. You have to prioritize.
0: Fear of failure or fearlessness?
1: Fear of failure, fear of success?
0: Fear of failure or fearlessness? Fearlessness. And the last one, would you rather disassociate from pressure or embrace it? Embrace it, I love
1: pressure. I think that really talented performers love pressure because they're confident they have prepared and they, they're confident in their abilities and they know that, that they can handle it. I mean, let's face it. You're in the Super Bowl, you're in the NBA Finals, you're at Wimbledon, you're in, you know, Daytona 500. You, you're you in an environment of incredible pressure. You can't ignore the pressure. Um, you either let it work for you, take you to a higher level, or it, it's going to crush you.
0: Awesome. So with that, let's conclude our marathon podcast. Uh, I want to thank David. Uh, as I mentioned, his book, The Bald Truth, has all kinds of great stories, ideas on negotiation. Um, it's, it's it's a good read. It, it's an easy read. So check that out. And David, thank you so much for your time. Wow. So I hope you enjoyed both conversations with David Falk. They're different conversations, even though it was one thread of consciousness. And i really loved the heart of both of these podcasts where David starts sharing how he sees the world and his mindset and his approach. His journey was fascinating as well and how he grew up and the way that he grew up, but really getting into the nuts and bolts of how he looks at his job and how he can do his job really well. And He, he spoke to his converse, about the conversation he had with John Thompson and how that sort of shifted the way he saw the world. And you know, two things that were takeaways, one was shooting for the stars and never settling for, settling for being mediocre, which he drew from his mom. But then the other point where John Thompson walked him in and said, your job isn't to be likable. Your job isn't to be um, this great personality. <laughs> Instead, it's to do a really good job. And the ability to put away your own ego or your own personality to just focus on doing the job resonated with me, and I think there's times where I think all of us want that desire to be well-liked, and that may not be what the job calls for. I know when I talk to a lot of coaches, they talk about, hey, I just need to do what's best for my guys, and sometimes it's a boot in the ass, sometimes it's telling them what they don't want to hear. I think that's where I really connected the dots to view David as a coach. I think he'd been around you know, some of the best coaches of all time, specifically Coach K and Coach Thompson, and I think he learned a ton from those guys. And I think the big takeaway for me was this notion of, I need to prepare my ass off, and then when it's time to do my job, I need to do it regardless of how others may see me. And he knew that being an agent, sometimes he would have to ruffle some feathers, and that his job wasn't always to be the most like guy in the room. And that's why I always recommend David Falk to anybody who is looking for representation, because David is not going to care about if he upsets a general manager or a head coach um, he, or a player, He is going to figure out what does that person need to hear and how can I express that information to that person to represent my clients to the best of their abilities. And that to me is what a great coach does. So uh, for me, listening to David talk, I really got a better understanding that he is a tr- terrific coach. And people say negotiator, agent, uh, whatever you want to call it. But at the end of the day, I think David really has become a coach and I think that is probably where he gets most of his fulfillment. So, with that, uh, I'd like to thank David Falk for coming on the Beyond on the Surface podcast. His book, as I mentioned earlier, The Bald Truth, is definitely worth picking up and giving a read and can give you more insight into some of the amazing stories that this guy has had along the way. Uh, it, it really is an easy and, and, and great read, and there's plenty of takeaways in there as well. So thank you all for listening. I really appreciate it. Hopefully, you are enjoying these podcasts. I'm still learning along the way how this works. Uh, hopefully, the audio is okay. I know that's something that I'm still figuring out, but I appreciate anybody who has taken the time to listen to these. I know they're long form, but that's the only way that I know how to do this. So thank you so much for listening, and we will talk again real soon.